the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. NMLS Consumer Access Up. The following program is sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth from Philip DeCourcy. We had a saying back in Northern Ireland, from the guttermost to the uttermost. Come, Jesus can save. And Mary Magdalene's story, Jesus appeared to her first. She's a poster child for the transforming grace of God. And if you've fallen headlong into sin, you don't think you can be saved, you can. He can save to the uttermost. All who will come unto God by Him. Is it possible for someone to be too far gone for God? Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy proves that God's grace is available to anyone and everyone, but His grace does require a response. We're in a message titled, Let's Get Going, so let's do just that. And remember, if you missed any of the earlier messages in our Essential Jesus series, just download them free of charge on our website. Go to ktt.org. Now, here's Philip DeCourcy. Wayne Gretzky, by most people's measurement, is probably the best ice hockey player of all time. And in a particular interview, he explained what he believed was the secret to his outstanding success on the ice hockey field, a success that exceeded any other player. And here's what he said to the interviewer, most hockey players follow the puck on the ice. I never skate to where the puck is. I skate to where it's going. That was his secret, the ability to anticipate the direction of the game and the movement of the puck. Well, if I was to make a spiritual connection to that or a, draw a spiritual comparison, as the church, we need to put our skates on and get moving in the direction God is moving. It's important that we do that. And I think you would agree with me that God is moving in the direction of the world and the people of the world. According to Acts 15, verse 14, God is in the business of calling out from among the nations a people for himself. In fact, that's what the church is, the ecclesia, the called out ones. That's what God is doing right now. Do you want to know the heart of God? Do you want to know the will of God? God's not willing that any should perish. God is calling out from among every tribe and tongue and nation a people for himself, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That's what God is doing. And we need to put our skates on and catch up with where God's at. God is saving people all across the world. And you and I need to bend our wills, point our feet in the direction of taking the gospel into the world. Jesus said, didn't he? In Acts 1 verse 8, you are my witnesses. Now go out into the world and witness for me. 
We've got the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, reflected here in Mark 16, verse 15, where we're told that the disciples of Jesus Christ and those who will believe on Jesus through them, they are to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. There's no limit to the gospel's appeal. We are sent into the world as the Father sent Jesus into the world to remind the world of the next world and the urgent need to put their trust in Jesus before they come to that next world. So let's get going. Let's get going in God's direction, out into the world that He seeks to save. We have an upward focus on God. We want to praise Him. We want to worship Him. We want to gather as the church and break bread and exalt His name among ourselves. We want to speak well of His Son. We want to listen to His Word. So our focus is upward, and it's exaltation. Then our focus is inward toward each other. We want to love each other as He has loved us. We want to gather on the Lord's day. We want to make as much use of the Lord's day as possible. We want to sit under godly preaching. We want to be led by godly leaders. We want to break bread, fellowship, pray, love on one another, raise up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So we have an upward focus, exaltation. We have an inward focus, edification. But we have an outward focus, evangelization. We're in the world called out of the world to go back into the world to call people out of the world to join the church that awaits for Jesus to come and remove us from the world. That's what makes us tick. That's what gets us up and moving as the church. Upwardly, we want to exalt the name of God. Inwardly, we want to edify one another and build one another up in the holy faith. And outwardly, we want to reach a world that sits in the shadow of death without God, without hope. So to that end, we come to this passage here in Mark 16, which has the Great Commission at its heart. Verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is the church and its marching orders. Now, before we look at this Great Commission passage, we have to deal with controversy that surrounds it. Before we can look at verses 9 through 20, we've got to deal with a major question concerning verses 9 through 20. And I noted that the majority of New Testament scholars are of the opinion that this was tagged on to the end of Mark's gospel around the second century. We don't find it in the earliest manuscripts before that time. It is in a multiple record of manuscripts after that time. And the thesis is and I would say not everybody believes this, but a majority of scholars believe this, and I have a sympathy for this position, that this was added later. Because Mark ends in verse 8, and it's rather untidy. It's rather abrupt. The women enter the empty tomb. They're told by the angel, Jesus is not here. He's risen, and the reaction is one of fear and amazement. And we end the gospel with, and they left afraid. Seems rather untidy. And some people in the church later on said, you know what, we've got to tidy up what's untidy. And so they sat down, and no doubt they borrowed from the other Gospels, from the book of Acts, because if you look at these verses in Mark 16, 9 to 20, you'll find them echoed in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And they wrote an ending more suitable, one that looks like Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, and John 20 and Luke 24. So let me kind of underscore that. 
you do know that we do not possess any of the original autographs. We don't have an original copy of Galatians or Ephesians or First and Second Thessalonians. Now, that might scare you, but don't let it scare you. In fact, Roger Nickel, a very good Reformed theologian, is quoted in R.C. Sproul's book on Mark's gospel, and he helps us to understand we have multiple copies. In fact, in terms of antiquity, we have more copies of the New Testament and the Old Testament later copies than any other ancient writing. And if you're going to believe in the existence of Julius Caesar, you've got to believe in the existence of Jesus Christ. Because we have many, many manuscripts. Now, some of them are dated around the 3rd and 4th century, some as early as the 1st and 2nd century. But understand this, while we don't have the originals, we shouldn't be frightened. And Roger Nickel gives this illustration I find helpful. I like things complicated to be made concrete and simple. So here's what he says. Think about this. Just say tomorrow, the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Washington burned down. Now inside there, we have the yardstick by which we measure all our yardsticks. But say we lost that yardstick tomorrow in a fire. Would that cast doubt on our ability to measure a yard? No. Why not? Because we have multiple copies of a yardstick. And they're all within fractions of the original. And when you put those all together, we can have a confidence that's a yard. And that's the analogy with textual criticism. We don't own the original manuscripts that were written by the apostles in reflection of the life and gospel of Jesus Christ. But we have multiple copies across the centuries. And when you put those together, there are some discrepancies. That's what textual criticism is about. But the differences are fractional. And therefore, we have a confidence in our English Bibles that are based on these manuscripts. So we're in this kind of arena of textual criticism. Well, does Mark 16, 9 to 20 belong in Mark's gospel. The majority of scholars say no, and here's why they say no. Bear with me. This is good. Stretches our mind a little, makes us think theologically. So there's seven reasons why I would think I need to be very agnostic about the inspired credibility of Mark 16, 9 to 20. Number one, because the abrupt ending isn't as inappropriate as some writers make out. Because we said last week, remember, Mark uses the word amazement quite a bit for the transfiguration, for the miracles of Jesus, the coming of the sea. Now, we get to the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Wouldn't it be somewhat appropriate for Mark to finish with, and the women were amazed? Because remember, his is a shorter gospel than any of the gospels. Tends to be dramatic, tends to get down to the essential. And so he doesn't add the appearances of Jesus to his disciples. He just finishes with, hey, he's not here, he's risen. Amazing. So amazing that it shocked the early witnesses. The unbelievable must be believed. Do you believe it? What's wrong with that ending? That's quite good, actually. It's challenging. It's a call to belief. That's argument number one. Number two, even though it is an abrupt ending, it doesn't have the appearances of Jesus, if you end at verse 8, like the other Gospels do, it does include an historical record of Jesus' resurrection. Mark doesn't leave the resurrection out. Because when the women get there early in the morning, the stone has been rolled away. They go in, they encounter an angel, and the angel says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, crucified? Well, he's not here, he's risen. What's wrong with that? He gets the resurrection in. The crucial, critical element of the Christian faith is there. Number three, Mark is not averse to including surprises. 
Remember the story we came across of the young man who appears out of nothing? We don't know his name. We assume it might be Mark. He follows in his nightgown. He loses his nightgown and he goes running nude into the night. It's kind of weird. So much so that Matthew, John, and Luke don't even touch that. You know, they don't include the streaker story. Mark does. You know, this is the secret text. I want to be careful. But it does show us Mark's flair for the unusual. And there's other evidence of Mark's gospel that shouldn't surprise us that he might end all of a sudden. They left afraid, amazed that Jesus was risen, struggling to believe it. Do you believe the unbelievable, which was prophesied by Jesus, so it is believable? Number four, the transition is grammatically awkward. When you go from verses eight and nine in the Greek, those who know the Greek tell us it's an awkward transition. You're going to come across 15 words that Mark never uses elsewhere in his gospel in these last few verses. Raises a red flag. You go from a focus in the Greek on the feminine in verse 8 with the women to all of a sudden this abrupt introduction of an emphatic masculine concerning Jesus. And it's awkward in the text. Even though you've got elements of Paul being bitten by a serpent in the book of Acts and not dying... There's nothing about those who drink poison, and there's nothing about picking up serpents. So that introduction, again, throws us for a little bit of a loop and wonder, go, is that historic, or is that kind of been added in? Number five, it's missing in the earliest manuscripts. Now, it isn't a majority of manuscripts that are dated later. But there is an argument to be made. If you've got fewer but earlier copies of the New Testament, and it's not included in them, does it not argue that it was probably added later about the second century? And several church leaders maybe sat down and said, I don't like the way Mark ends. It's not like Matthew, it's not like Luke, and it's not like John. And so they kind of take elements of those gospel endings, put them together, come up with a later ending for Mark and add it. And it's found in many other manuscripts. But I think there's a good argument to be made. It's missing in the earliest manuscripts. Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are some of the earliest Latin manuscripts that we have, and it's not in there. Number six, tied into this, you read the early church fathers, the earliest church fathers, they don't mention it. In fact, they mention its absence. And although some later church fathers say they can find it in some of the manuscripts, it is not consistently in all the manuscripts, and they even cast doubt on it themselves. And then number seven, it's here because Mark ends abruptly. Somebody decided, we want to tidy up what's untidy. But really, it is a reflection of Matthew 28. It is a reflection of Luke 24. It is a reflection of John 20. So the argument is, it's borrowed. It's not original. It's borrowed from the other original endings and added to Mark. A little bit of tidying up being done. So, you know, think about that yourself. Think that stuff out. I mean, just start to think out in big terms. You know what? We don't have the original autographs. Can we be sure of the translation we have of God's Word? We can because there's multiple manuscripts. And when you put them together, they're all within fractions of each other. And we can often deal with those discrepancies and give reasons why you might find those discrepancies. And we're left with this clear and confident sense when we come to our New Testament, thus says the Lord. So I'm going to make an argument that this is not the inspired text that belongs to Mark 16. Well, it's not necessarily the inspired text, originally speaking. We can see that it's based on the inspired text. It borrows from all the other Gospels and the book of Acts. 
I like what Paul Beasley Murray says. Just listen as he comments on this. He used to be the president of and principal of Spurgeon's College in London. Mark 16, 9 to 20 contain genuine gospel material. These verses show us how the church continued to think of Easter as central and decisive as the hinge of its history and belief, and above all, its missionary proclamation and service. In essence, we have in these verses a summary of material contained in other gospels, perhaps drawn up with the need of instructing new Christians in the faith. So, if you want an outline for these verses, here's it is. The appearances, verses 9 to 14. After his resurrection, Jesus does appear on multiple occasions to various groups. First to Mary Magdalene, according to Mark 16. Then to two on the road to a mass, and then eventually to the disciples themselves, who are held up, according to John 20, in a room, sitting at a table out of fear of the Jews. And there's this initial hesitancy and reluctance to believe the testimony of Mary Magdalene and the two who met Jesus on the road to a mess. And so Mark tells us of Jesus' appearances. So that's verses 9 to 14, the appearances. Then verses 15 to 18, we have the assignment. The Duke of Wellington called this passage and its counterpart in Matthew 28, the church's marching orders. He was an old military man, part of the British army. He said, this is Jesus giving his troops their marching orders. And it's to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then you have the ascension, verses 19 to 20, where we're told that after his resurrection, after his appearances, after commissioning his church, Jesus is received up into heaven. That'll take us to Acts chapter 1. And sat at the right hand of God. That takes us to Hebrews chapter 1. And then his disciples went out and preached everywhere. We've got this wonderful thought of Jesus' enthronement at the right hand of God, the majesty on high. Unlike every Levitical priest who had to stand offering sacrifices all the time, Jesus now sits down, having made the one final sacrifice for sin. And there he sits to be a representative for us. You know, we talk about lobbyists in Washington. And they're there to win the ear and the attention of Republicans and Democrats together. Well, we have a lobbyist in heaven working on our behalf. Jesus Christ works on behalf of anyone who will come unto God through him, for he ever lives to make intercession for them. It's a wonderful thought that Jesus is always lobbying, always not arguing, but appealing and presenting to the Father that we can indeed benefit from the fruits of his death and resurrection. So that's what we've got here. The appearances, the assignment, and the ascension. Now, I'm going to go back to the appearances for a couple of minutes. And I want to acknowledge that some of the seed thoughts here I got from J.C. Ryle on his commentary on Mark. And the first thought is this. Again, we're back to our confidence in the text, and we're back to the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. Mark here is not so subtly layering proof upon proof regarding Jesus' resurrection. He's already given testimony to the fact that Jesus actually died. He obliterates the swoon theory that somehow Jesus lapsed into unconsciousness and was revived in the coal of the tomb. And we have a resuscitation, not a resurrection. No chance, no way. We've got Joseph of Arimathea, who certifies that Jesus was dead. He buried him. He wrapped him in linen. We've got the centurion who told Pilate he's definitely dead. And then we've got the women who stood afar off. They watched where Jesus was buried. Then they went back on the morning of his resurrection and they found the tomb empty. They went inside and they encountered the angel and they give testimony to the fact that he's alive. And now in this 
ending, which reflects the other Gospels, Mark 16, 9 to 14, tell us that he appears to the two on the road to Emmaus and the disciples themselves. Point being, quickly, this cornerstone doctrine of the Christian church is well led as an historic fact. Here's another thing when we come to the appearances I find much more practical and pastoral. Don't you like, and we hope there's some element of truth in this, that according to the text, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, and there's a message in that, ladies and gentlemen. Because Mary Magdalene had seven demons and Jesus cast them out. I love the thought here that Mary is the first to meet Jesus. Because that's a wonderful testament, isn't it? To the amazing nature of grace. To the redeeming message of salvation. See, the disciples are about to go out into the world, and they're going to encounter basically two types of people. The religious type, the self-righteous type, who believe they can work their way to heaven and win the favor of God. And Jesus is an add-on. Jesus is a tag-on. And they really don't believe they need to be saved. You ever met that person? But there's another person who's gone so far into sin, sinned with a high hand, shoot their fist in the face of God. They believe they've sinned so much they can't be saved. And Mary Magdalene's in this story as a woman who was a pagan, a woman who either dabbled in the black arts or was oppressed by the devil, a woman who had seven demons inside her, gloriously saved, wonderfully transformed, and Jesus wants the person to know who doesn't think they can be saved, he was the first to meet a woman who is the epitome of sin. It's wonderful testimony. J.C. Ryle says this, The story of Mary Magdalene is intended to comfort all who have become penitent believers after having run into great accesses of sin. Maybe some of you here have got a really checkered background, and your resume, morally speaking, is short on the righteous side and long on the unrighteous side. Don't you doubt God's ability to save you, keep you, and land you safely in heaven. He can save to the uttermost, all who will come unto God by Him. We had a saying back in Northern Ireland, from the guttermost to the uttermost, come, Jesus can save. And Mary Magdalene's story, and Jesus appeared to her first, he's her kind of person. She's a poster child for the transforming grace of God. And if you have fallen headlong into sin, you don't think you can be saved, you can. And the fact that Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene reminds us of that. That's Philip DeCourcy reminding us that no one is beyond the reach of God's extravagant grace. That's the heart of the gospel we're discovering today on Know the Truth. Listen again online at ktt.org or order the complete Essential Jesus series on CD. And while you're on that website, you'll notice that we're welcoming new listeners with a free CD message from Pastor Philip. It's one of Philip's most requested sermons called Stop Your Worrying. Now that's easier said than done, but... In this message, Philip offers practical biblical tools for overcoming anxiety and worry. It's our gift to you just for reaching out. Request it online or call us at 888-644-8811. When things seem overwhelming, returning to the solid truth of God's Word is our surest source of comfort. So request this free CD message today. At Know the Truth, we also invite you to be part of our team of supporters to help ensure that Philip's clear, convicting teaching reaches people all over the world. It's only through the support of listeners that we can deliver the truth that sets men and women free. And when you give today, Philip will send you the wisdom of Proverbs. 
It's packaged in a book titled Living Well. Author Alan Mosley explains how to use the truths of Proverbs to create a life that pleases God and influences others. Give today and request your copy of Living Well online at ktt.org or call us at 888-644-8811. But you could also write to us at Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. When you call or write, let us know how God is using Know the Truth in your life. You can also share your testimony when you visit our website. We love hearing from our listeners. Just go to ktt.org and click the contact tab. So glad you joined us today. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and there's more bold Bible teaching coming up next week on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Medved for townhall.com. Two Republican legislators in South Carolina proposed a new monument on the state capitol grounds to honor Confederate soldiers, this time commemorating black fighting men who went to battle for the South. This idea is both ill-considered and offensive. First, the estimated 6,000 African Americans who did fight for the Confederacy were mostly slaves and forced to do so. Many deserted when the Confiscation Acts and the Emancipation Proclamation offered freedom to those who crossed Union lines. Second, black soldiers represented less than 1% of the 750,000 white Confederates and a tiny fraction of the 200,000 blacks who served the Union military. Finally, it makes no sense to construct new memorials to those who fought against the United States in an effort to destroy our country. Yes, there may be romance and sentiment associated with the South's lost cause, but conservatives who want support from people of color must unequivocally acknowledge that this lost cause deserved to lose. I'm Michael Medved. Forever My Girl is a modern-day... Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.